0: Hello again and welcome to another episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind, our virtual Bible study where we gather together here in the internet uh, and on your devices as you listen to this podcast recording. Wherever you are, we are together because we're united by the same Holy Spirit and reading God's Holy Word together. Our fundamental goal in Knowing God with Heart and Mind is to know god really to know god that it is a our premise that the bible is god's instrument of grace to a lost and forlorn world where people who live outside of god's grace need to be healed and to be restored to a relationship with god and god makes the bible available in so many ways as an instrument of that grace that is not to say that God doesn't reach people in other ways, and that God doesn't speak in other ways, but we consider the Bible entirely sufficient for God's purposes, and that's why we believe that even should someone receive a testament from a Gideon, or receive one in a hotel room, or even a prison cell, and by themselves read the word and encounter God, they will be transformed and receive God's grace through God's Word in the form of the Bible. It's just been proven time and time again, and we can't deny it. So our goal then is to read the Word, to talk about what it seems to mean to us, to interpret it based on the knowledge and the collective wisdom of scholars and sages throughout the the millennia, but also to apply our own common sense and to relate to God, as a person, as one who desires to be known and loved by his children. And we're made his children through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, each week as we do this process together, we follow a certain pattern. We share a couple of quick announcements, maybe a Parsons Prairie tale and Then uh, we read a couple of passages from the Revised Common Lectionary schedule and then talk about what they might be saying to us today. The Revised Common Lectionary is a schedule of readings that has been used by Christians for many, 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 many years and has served us well as a means of interpreting and learning God's will for the church on earth. So let's go. As we say, the announcements come first. So let's talk for a minute about some business. The Parsons Prairie location is going to change soon. And this means simply that as a pastor under appointment by the bishop in the United Methodist Church, I have vowed to obey the bishop's leadership and to itinerate, or that is, be moved as needed in a strategic way. I'm being redeployed or deployed to a different mission field. And in that regard, we'll be leaving Parsons Prairie and our friends here at Corinth Church, but we will continue the work that God has put upon our lives as my family and I take up a new residence in another part of our home state here in Indiana. So the Parsons Prairie tales, I guess, will have to wind down and I haven't really figured out what we're going to talk about when we get to uh, uh, our new home because I haven't learned it yet. But I can imagine that there are things going on in my backyard and in my neighborhood and around my community that are interesting and worthy of a tale or two. And they'll probably even end up with nicknames and and, uh, fanciful locations like Parsons Prairie. Don't go looking up Parsons Prairie on the state map. It hasn't been officially named yet, but I know where it is. And if you close your eyes and picture it with me, you do too. Parsons Prairie is a windswept, flat farm land that has an occasional ripple in the landscape and... Uh, there is most notably one that we refer to to affectionately as the septic summit that sits between the house we call the parsonage and the church where we serve. And then there is a, a crack in the landscape that hosts a creek that has a particularly interesting name because its name is No Name Creek. And along that creek there is so much wildlife that moves back and forth across the prairie. And there are so many interesting birds and fowl of various kinds that come to visit us here at Parsons Prairie. Why, just the other day I saw Ned and Sadie, the uh, beautiful little red-winged blackbird couple that lives in the dead tree that sits just across No Name Creek from the Duck Rock. Now, the Duck Rock is where I sit and watch my ducks or at least where I used to. And uh, what I've noticed this year as spring has come into its fullness and the trees are beginning to fill out with their leaves. And uh, uh, typically the kill deer are wandering in the prairie and the field between the home and the church. And they're usually doing everything they can to distract me from the nests that they are building and the eggs that they're laying and, And this is a pretty routine thing that uh, happens around here. And yet, I noticed an interesting turn of events last uh, about two weeks ago. I was walking the Ruthie Road. That's named for my daughter, Ruthie, who is uh, wheelchair-bound. And uh, she got a road built for her by some of the fine folks at Corinth Church. Uh, a little path, really, that she can use to get from our house to the church without being at risk out on that county road uh, with all of its traffic. And as we're walking the Ruthie Road, I noticed that day that uh, there were red-winged blackbirds all over, uh, probably a dozen or so, and uh, which delighted me because I was just thrilled back when we had the two, Ned and Sadie, I called them but uh, apparently they've been prolific, and they've also invited their friends to come. And so now when I look at that dead tree across from the duck rock, I see actually a few families of these red-winged blackbirds. Now, if you know anything about birds, you know that that's a welcome sight because they're not uh, they're not a consistent uh, visitor in a lot of cases. And so you're really lucky when you've got some of those around, and they're really very pleasant neighbors. Uh, they are uh, very. They sing beautifully, and they seem to greet me whenever I come out and visit with them. They seem unintimidated by me. I can sit on the duck rock and chat with them, and they just sit up there and chatter back at me. And, uh, but they've been uh, out in the field there where I usually see the killdeer. I will see the red-winged blackbirds uh, hopping around looking for worms and grubs and things, and I'm not seeing the killdeer. And this leads me to believe that perhaps the red winged blackbirds have uh, dislocated the killdeer. I just, I'm not sure, but this is my observation so far. Um, we certainly, here at Parsons Prairie, have become accustomed to the migrations of various species and. Uh, So anything is possible, and uh, we'll look for a better understanding. So there you are, a brief announcement and uh, Parsons Prairie tale. Oh, and by the way, here on Parsons Prairie, we're celebrating a wedding. Our son and his wonderful fiancé are getting married this Saturday. and uh, Well, by the time you hear this, it'll be last Saturday. And uh, we're very excited about that. But it also means that this may be the only recording that goes out this week, since I will be taking Sunday off to share in our joyous family uh, celebration, and uh, so uh, there won't be a uh, recording of the sermon for this coming Sunday. Anyway, there you have it. Now let's get on to the main reason for our getting together to study God's Word. Mm -hmm. Our lectionary readings begin this week with the Acts of the Apostles. We'll read Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 41, and then we're going to read from Psalm 116. So let's take a look at those now. First, Acts of the Apostles, and the lectionary writers want us to remember that Peter is standing with the eleven on the uh, high holy day in the life of the church, what would be called Pentecost. Uh, I say church, I should say in the Jewish tradition at this time uh, in history. But uh, they are the church being born on this particular Jewish holiday. And uh, Peter is speaking to a very Jewish crowd when he says in Acts 2, beginning at verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about three thousand were added to their number that day. Psalm 116, verses 1 to 4. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. Verses 12 to 19. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the midst of our Lord in Jerusalem. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word, and we ask as we begin to explore and seek that you will grant us greater wisdom and insight through your Holy Spirit that we might truly know you and for our relationship with you to be all-consuming so that we might love you more than anything or anyone else and by doing so experience the perfect way that you balance our lives in all other things. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. (laughs) This reading from Psalms 116 stands out a little bit, in my mind anyway, because it is different in its rhythm and words from the other three readings that we're going to experience today. It doesn't seem to fit until we unpack it a little bit, and then it seems to make more sense Uh As I've told you before, I I believe that God has worked through the lectionary and those who created it in a way that enlivens the church or the body of Christ when we use it. Uh, I don't worship the lectionary, and I don't have a problem with churches that don't use it. In fact, I have been a pastor for 20 years and only occasionally followed the lectionary. The beauty of the lectionary is, is that it's there as a resource for those who need a break uh, from trying to imagine their own way through the scripture, uh, or who would prefer not to just pick it up and read it from beginning to end. I've done all of that, and I've urged other people to do all of that. But anyway, the lectionary is wonderful, and I have a confidence in it for its uh, special ability to combine scriptures that tell us something important about our God and the God of Uh, Jesus is both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So what is the psalmist trying to tell us in Psalm 116? Well, certainly the psalms are one of the best places for you to get to know God with heart and mind. You want to know something about the nature of God? Well, read the psalms. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my supplications. That is to say... He heard my uh, cries for help. He heard me in my time of need when I begged for mercy. He listened so intently as I laid out my case before him. Death stared me in the face. Hell was hard on my heels. Up against it, I didn't know which way to turn, but then God, God called me out. Uh, called ah, Then I called out to God for help, and God saved me. I mean, I, I'm I'm using a paraphrase that adequately puts those words into more common language, but you get the point. What's the first thing that you need to know about God? He hears the cries of his people. He hears the people when they call out to him. And by the way, whenever I refer to God as a he, um, it's... Something we do a lot of times, we Christians and Jews and many people will speak of God as a he, and well, in this era of of uh, sensitivity and political correctness, a person can get in trouble by referring to God as he. Now, I just want to say that uh, I don't assume that God is male. I don't assume that God is female. I assume that God is entirely apart from everything God created and that we're made in God's image. So I have a feeling that when we see God face to face, we're going to find that God is a lot more like us than we realize. But we don't assume God has a, a gender. God created gender. And God made man and woman unique. And uh, so we don't mean it when we say he, when we refer to God, as anything other than a method of communicating about this person who calls himself or has been called by Jesus the son the heavenly father now we believe those terms were not human inventions but more of an assignment of of a certain character quality of god in certain ways god is more like a father and in other ways god is more like a mother but when jesus speaks of god the father it doesn't, again, necessarily equate to a maleness as much as it's a statement about the 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 fatherly nature, the, the head of the household sort of idea. Um, and I know that's repugnant to some people, but, you know, the Bible is a pretty accurate mechanism for determining how things in the world should probably be. And uh, I'm not going to apologize for believing that the Bible's structure for the household is a pretty good one. Um, On the other hand, I also know that God has numerous expressions of grace in the Bible for those whose lives have not been entirely in sync with God's will and God's way. And for those of us who assume too much about how in sync we are with God's will and God's way, Well, I sure steered off the road there, but, you know, if you were in one of my actual face-to-face Bible studies, you'd probably get used to hearing me do that. I like to go where the Spirit leads, and sometimes I just go where my mind takes me. So as we're listening to Psalm 116, we're understanding certain characteristics of God that are clearly statements of God's quality. Um... Keep in mind, for example, that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was pleading with God to take the cup away from him. And at the point when Jesus seemed that he was about to break, in uh, one of the Gospels, we hear that that angels ministered to him. And uh, it is my belief, my personal belief, that Jesus was uh, not only suffering the anticipation of his physical suffering and death, But he was also already well on the road to paying the penalty for our sin as he prayed in the garden. Um, I think that this, this redemption process that Jesus went through for us was a process that not only included the cross. It included the moments when the Lord Jesus and the Lord God the Father were separating for a time because of the sin that he was taking upon himself. If Jesus is truly the one who cancels our debt of sin to God, then at some point, Jesus, in that journey of the crucifixion and his passion, is taking upon himself the sin of all unrighteous humanity. This unrighteousness and sin was not natural to him. He didn't have sin. Jesus was unique in all of time and history and space because he didn't have sin. And so sin being separation from God the Father and uh, having this sense that, you know, I'll let you know when I need your help, God, this disrespect for God, this condescension that is so natural to humanity. Jesus didn't possess that. And yet on this eve of his crucifixion he seems to be so upset that he's sweating blood as as though something is happening to him even before he goes to the cross that is incredibly difficult for him and so my assumption then is is that jesus was beginning to bear the weight of our sin even in the garden of gethsemane and in that garden he suffered terribly because of a separation that he'd never known in all of his existence the separation from god the father and the holy spirit so that he was as alone as we are and the sad thing is is he understood how horrible it is to be that far removed from a relationship with god the father the creator and we don't understand we don't even understand The psalmist says, I heard your cry, speaking as though God were listening to Jesus. I heard you cry. I saw you as you went into the grave. I was with you as you battled sin and death and Satan. And I answered your prayer and raised you from the grave and set you free. The psalmist is telling us the story of God's redemption and the story of how God heard the prayers of the most precious Son. Then we get to the Acts of the Apostles, where Peter, who has been filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, who is really... At this point just not afraid anymore he's not hiding in an upper room with his pals in fact all of them are standing in front of the whole Jewish population the same people who crucified Jesus the same people that uh, they were hiding from now when Peter stands before this crowd we keep in mind that it says in the end of today's passage that Peter uh, was was part of the baptism of over 3,000 people I don't know how big this crowd was, and uh, I honestly don't know that it was exclusively 3,000 people and they all got saved, so possibly there were 5,000 people there. We just don't know, but it was a big crowd. So when he looks out at the crowd and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, I wonder who he's talking to. Now, my first thought when I was studying the passage uh, a week or so ago was that maybe He was saying it in a sort of general term, you know, because you did nothing, you were just as guilty as those who did something. And that seemed to make sense, you know, because certainly there were people in that crowd who had been there at the big rally outside of uh, the Praetorium where... Uh, Pontius Pilate is trying to get them to cut Jesus a break, and they yelled, crucify, crucify, and give us Barabbas. And, and so, you know, I thought, well, okay, so you know he's talking to the same bunch of people. This is all happening in a relatively short span of time, and, and uh, that seemed reasonable to me. But the more I thought about it, especially in light of what he says just a few verses later, When Peter tells them, now, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then I started thinking, okay, so what if he says this Jesus whom you crucified, and he's talking to me? Maybe he's telling me, I crucified Jesus, because you know I did. I crucified Jesus because I sinned against God the Father, because I was born into sin. I crucified Jesus because I was as guilty as anyone else who was complicit in Jesus' death on the cross. And in that regard, I had to turn to that same Jesus and repent and ask in Jesus' name for forgiveness of my sin. I was the one who put Jesus in the garden where he had to experience the separation from God that is common to people like me and you. I was as guilty as any sinner who ever walked the earth, even Barabbas, until Jesus went to that garden and took my sin upon himself, till he went to that cross and I drove the nails into him and I drove the spear into him. To really wrestle with and come out having received God's blessing, like Jacob, is to understand that we must be wounded. In this case, it's a matter of having our pride wounded. It's a matter of having our self-centered thinking transformed. If I can't imagine myself being complicit in the death of Jesus then I can't imagine myself adequately repenting for sin and receiving the amazing grace of God and the forgiveness that Jesus offers. So this is perhaps what really is going on when Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified, this would explain why those people having heard what he said pleaded with Peter and the others and said, brothers, what do we do? If you understood in the depths of your heart that you were so guilty before God of disrespect and disregard and condescension and evil, if you felt that weight of that guilt and you felt that God wanted you to be in a relationship with God so much that God allowed you to kill his son, so that you took his beautiful son and you stripped him of all that made him feel part and parcel to the body of the spirit the Father and the Son, to this one being who is God. And, and if you could say, you know, I think I understand now that I might as well have killed him. If all of that happened, then wouldn't you turn to that very Jesus and say, oh my God, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And what if he raised you up and said, it's already done. I've just been waiting for you to realize that you are forgiven. And now receive the Holy Spirit. Join me in the kind of relationship with God that you were always meant to have. Join me in the union with God that is brought about by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that remarkable? No wonder Peter says, if you're not going to do this, then beware this wicked and corrupt generation around you will do all that is possible with the help of Satan to destroy you and to keep you from ever having a meaningful relationship with God. Our final two readings come from uh, first Peter, the first letter of Peter and from the Gospel of Luke. So let's start with First Peter chapter 1 verses 17 to 23. This same Peter who was talking to us in the Acts of the Apostles on that day just a few weeks after the resurrection of Jesus is now an older man, and uh, perhaps he's gotten a little wiser, in fact, I know he has, and uh, now he speaks again. In uh, in a profound way, which seems to be his new style after the Pentecost and uh, after Jesus reinstated him. So here we go. First Peter chapter one, verses 17 to 23. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply, from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Now, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love them all, but there are a few that are just my very favorites. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35, the Emmaus Road experience. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened as they And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were getting, uh, going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us? on the road and open the scriptures to us they got up and returned at once to jerusalem there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying it is true the lord has risen and has appeared to simon then the two told what had happened on the way and how jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread may god add blessing to the hearing of his word. Wow. Those readings are just mind-boggling if you think about them a lot. I I can't I can't even grasp what it would be like to have been with those guys on the Emmaus Road. I mean, I think I lead a fairly decent Bible study. ha Could there be a better Bible study on the planet? Could there be a better Bible study in all of history than the one that Jesus gave Cleopas and the other fellow on the road to Emmaus? Jesus interpreted everything in scripture and how it pointed to him. Now, I'm inclined to think that when we read the letters of the apostles and when we are led by the Spirit in our study of the Word, that somehow we're getting the, the uh, uh, knowledge that Jesus imparted to those guys, but oh my gosh, what would it be like to actually sit or walk with Jesus and hear the Bible interpreted by the one who wrote it? I just, I can't even imagine, but I'm so jealous for those guys. So I picture this scene where uh, people are leaving the Passover uh, celebrations in Jerusalem and making their way back to their homes. And so people are going down the Jericho Road towards uh, uh, the Dead Sea, and then they're going to go up the Jordan River and back to Galilee and places like that. And other people are going to go out towards uh, the the lowlands and uh, down by the sea and then these guys are going to go from up in Jerusalem over to Emmaus just seven miles away and descend towards this uh, this little village where they were from and many people may have been on the same path that day and so it might have been like Uh, a walk on a sunday afternoon on a pathway or a greenway or something in some park you know you can just imagine all these people cruising along down the trail some walking faster than others some pushing carts or strollers or something like that and you know here comes jesus who walks up alongside these two guys and No doubt, all the people are muttering about different things, and uh, maybe even as Cleopas suggested, they were muttering about the same things. But Jesus comes alongside those two and walks with them for a while. And as I picture this, and I hear Jesus saying, do you guys understand that all of that had to happen to fulfill Scripture? Friends, let's think about that for just a second. Um, Sometimes I don't think we give enough credit to Jesus for the consistent and absolute way that he fulfilled all the prophecies about him. And there would be a temptation, especially on the scoffers part, to, to say, yeah, right, he got out the Old Testament and he highlighted with his yellow highlighter marker all the things that Messiah had to be, and then he went about systematically ticking off the list. Well, I don't have to tell you that that was probably impossible in his day, just about as it would be impossible in our day. Uh, And believe me when I tell you that in his day, those people who criticized him most, even those who put him to death, if there was one thing you could say about them that maybe was positive, is they were scholars. It was their job to know the scriptures inside and out. The irony is, is that, He fulfilled the scriptures and the prophecies more completely than anyone before or after him, and they still rejected him. They were blind to it, you could say. But that doesn't change the fact that he had accurately and adequately done exactly what was said about him, and in so many ways done even more than what was there. That is to say, Jesus was more than the sum of those parts we would call the prophecies. We know with hindsight that he did more things that were listed in the Old Testament than what the people of the Old Testament would have looked for. And what is that purpose? Prophecy is not the same as uh, the predictions of psychics that end up in those magazines you see at the checkout counter at the grocery store. They... They are people who make predictions and depend on at least a few of them to come true so that you can worry and fret over their other predictions. Prophecy is an entirely different animal. Prophecy is not meant to be seen as a prediction, but as a uh, preordained fact to be checked. That is to say that God, through the prophets, issues a significant number of of details that we should look for in order to know that the thing that we're experiencing is of God. And so if God prophesies that certain things will happen that uh, will mark the Messiah as the true one, then Jesus fulfilling those prophecies is The one. And in the same way, the false Messiah, the false teacher, can easily be identified because they don't fulfill the expectations. And the irony, I guess, is is that the people who killed Jesus, who criticized Jesus, had in their minds a particular set of expectations that were in some ways fulfilled, uh, or, or I should say some ways expressed by prophecy, and yet there were other ways in which their expectations didn't have anything to do with prophecy, they were just the expectations that everybody agreed would be the most desirable. And so they would disqualify someone as being a Messiah if they couldn't fulfill the prophecies that they wanted to see the Messiah fulfill. But they would also disqualify a Messiah, even the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, if he didn't fulfill their expectations as well as the prophecies. So they could see him as one who was fulfilling the prophecies, but he didn't fulfill their expectations. Did you hear Cleopas and the other guy say, we really thought he was the guy? They're downcast and disappointed because they backed a guy that they were sure was the guy. And then he got killed. And so at first they're just frustrated because... They backed the guy who got killed, and so I guess he wasn't the one. But they are deeply frustrated in a way that they can't even understand until Jesus explains it to them. When he says to them, you saw him fulfill as many things as you could see. Now let me explain to you all of the things he fulfilled, and then you'll understand why even in his death, he has lived up to the prophecies. And furthermore, he has risen from the grave, as the prophecies have indicated. I mean, you want to know for sure whether you're backing the right guy when you put all your faith in Jesus? Well, the Apostle Peter told us in the reading that we took from his letter today that we have been saved by the precious blood of Jesus, who was without blemish and defect. And he was chosen before the creation of the world to be revealed at this time. It's almost as though Peter is saying that sin was an inevitable outcome and that Jesus and God had, through the Son, already planned the redemption of humanity through Jesus. Now, some other time we can argue about why would God do such a thing, but I have uh, always settled on a fairly simple answer, which is if God's desire was to create beings that were entirely devoted to him, then the significance of sin is that when we choose to love God and trust God's character completely, we really are the ideal children of God and so God had to risk the threat of sin in order that we might turn to God look at Job and you'll understand what I'm saying Uh, another time we'll study Job together but keep in mind that Satan's fundamental gripe with Job was that he believed that Satan that is believed that Job only worshipped God because God gave him stuff for it I mean you know is it really love and worship if they just do it so that you'll give something to them in return? Isn't it just quid pro quo, Jesus, or God? And in the same way, you could say that about Jesus. Is is it really quid pro quo, Jesus? Did you just die on the cross so that we would give you something you want, and then you would give us something we want? Uh a get out of jail free card uh, is to say to get out of hell you know there's the problem too many of us have submitted to we've accepted the gift that jesus gives us which gets us out of hell and in that way we're really no different from that thief on the cross who confesses jesus is more than people have given him credit for and for that jesus says then today you'll be with me in paradise but There's so much more to it than that. There's so much more than just being afraid of death and then having a source of confidence that we think will take away our fear of death. And Friends, I'm going to tell you as a pastor, I've been alongside a lot of deathbeds and in the rooms of a lot of suffering people whose assurance wasn't as great as they hoped it would be when they gave their eternity to Jesus. There's more to this than confessing that you're a sinner and that Christ is your salvation. This is about a new life and a new birth. This is about becoming holy children of God who live in the Holy Spirit toward a sanctification or a set-apartness that makes you conform to the image of Christ, which is to say, conform to the image of the children of God. You know that old saying about how pets will start to look like their masters and their masters will start looking like their pets? Or better yet, an old married couple is said to kind of look a little bit alike because they've been together so long. You know, those are fun sayings. But the truth behind them is is that when, when two individuals are bonded together for a lifetime, they begin to take on certain similarities in their personalities and they begin to seem a lot like each other over time. And this is really the nature of the new birth of the Holy Spirit. It's the nature of sanctification when we accept Christ's salvation. But more than that, when we are born again in the Holy Spirit, we begin the process of confirmation to the image of Christ or to be more explicit to the children of God so that not only are we looking like our brother or our equal Jesus in the Spirit, that is, we've been made equal. but we're looking like we're children of God. How much do you look like God? How much do I look like God if you know me? You can answer that. And are we on this journey that shows our deep love and gratitude by the constant effort to transform our nature? Not that we can do it in and of ourselves, but if we will resist the Holy Spirit and simply show up at church on Sunday to visit with friends and to thank God for giving us a pass on hell, we've kind of stopped short of the real goal. we stop short of what God has really intended for us. Receive the gift of justification through Jesus Christ and then begin the journey of sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Well, I hope you've been blessed today. I guess uh, preachers got to preach, you know. Uh, If we were in Bible study together, there might be a more conversational way that we were doing this. But uh, nonetheless, I read the word and this is what it puts into my heart. And I hope you've been blessed. Beloved, I will tell you again with all my heart, don't let this be the only thing you do. Being a Christian is not a solo act. There are no lone wolf Christians. Now, I'll tell you a little secret. I'm quite an introvert, and it's not easy for me to socialize. And uh, every Sunday as a pastor, I have to kind of turn up my courage and plunge into the crowd and greet people and enjoy their company. And it's not that I don't enjoy them. It's just that it takes more energy for me than it does more extroverted people. But I couldn't imagine doing this alone. I want to be a part of a team. I want to be a part of a collaborative Christianity, a part of a family of faith. And you you can be part of a family of faith because you share your love for the Lord in your household. Your first and best expression of your Christianity is to your husband, your wife, your children, your best expression of your Christianity is to those people that God has put into your life. Uh, if you're not married and not raising a family, then maybe you're somebody who in your singleness a uh, a mission and ministry of expression to people that you work with or go to school with. But you must be a part of a living expression of what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. And you do that in many ways. It's even better when you do it as a part of a church. And I know there's some lousy churches out there. I really do. I've, I've been aware of it all my life, just as you. I've been to those churches where it doesn't seem to be about what I think it's supposed to be about. God in his mercy has allowed millions of different kinds of churches to exist. And for some reason, there are uh, some that in whatever way they do church, may not appeal to you, but they are nonetheless an effective part of whatever God is doing. And so it's okay if you look for like-minded people to walk this walk with. Uh, Jesus passed several people, if you believe my picture of things, on the road to Emmaus and uh, stopped and uh, came alongside Cleopas and that other person. You know, where are you going to come alongside with somebody so that you can be a part of this collaborative Christianity that I'm talking about. Be a part of a church. Search until you find the place that it feels God wants you to be. Join with other believers. Be in a live, in-person, face-to-face Bible study. Host one in your own home. If you don't think you're qualified, don't worry about it. You can open the Bible and read it and ask people in the room to talk about what it seems to say. You can ask your pastor or some other elder Christian in your world to give you a little guidance when you run into things that are confusing for you. But uh, be a part of something. Join a local church. If you like what you're getting here and you feel blessed by it, I hope you will support it by supporting the local churches around you. You can support the Corinth United Methodist Church. You can find them on CorinthUMC.com. Or you can support Shiloh United Methodist Church at shilohum.org. And uh, if you don't do that, then uh, support somebody somewhere by uh, joining with God in an act of worship that we call tithes and offerings. Because all of these things are acts of worship. And they're not meant to to uh, fund uh, you know an organization as much as they are to express your complete confidence and your utter gratitude towards Jesus. Until we're together again, may God bless you. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.